In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We all know that in our families, there's those unwritten rules, which really are the most important, right? These, these, these unspoken rules that govern everything in our families. I think every family probably has their unique set of these rules. But I, I think I'm finding that there's one universal rule that transcends all time, transcends every family and every culture. One rule, one unwritten rule that we all have, at least growing up in our families. And that is if your mother says something twice, you had better listen. These rules that you don't want to break ever. Now this bit of wisdom, this proverb might we call it, actually transcends families and parenting, doesn't it? Uh, we found it to be wise as it applies to every other place in our lives. Whether it be from our parents, uh, your boss at work, or the weatherman predicting the next snowstorm, or God in scripture, if it's said twice, then it's probably worth listening to. It's probably important enough to heed. You might have noticed this morning that how we began our worship sounds very, very similar to our first lesson from Exodus. Indeed, there are both the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, as we sometimes call it. It's no coincidence. We begin every service this way in a penitential season with the Decalogue up front. If you come any time throughout Advent or Lent, this is what we do. This is what the church has done for ages past in penitential seasons. The Decalogue part of our liturgy should be enough to catch our attention. But the actual giving of the law in our lesson from Exodus is God saying it to us twice this morning. We had better listen. So what is God getting at here? What is God trying to tell us this morning? Well, among many possible things, perhaps one at least that fits very well with the season of, of Lent that we're in, and that is one of repentance. In fact, you should see an intentional pattern if you've come here often in what we do in our liturgy, which again is no coincidence. What is it that we do immediately following the Decalogue? We immediately repent, do we not? We beg God for his mercy. But let's be very brutally honest together here just for a moment. We not always, not all the time, we don't like the idea of repentance, do we? Just for instance, when you sat down and you received your service booklet and you opened it up before the beginning of the service and you saw that we were going to be reciting the Decalogue again, did you do this mental eye roll in your head? The Decalogue is going to point out to me where I have gone wrong, the bad things that I have done. The ways I didn't cut it, where I failed. And we don't like being told that very often in our culture, do we? But did you know Martin Luther, the, per, the first Protestant, the first evangelical, might we even say, wrote that the entire life is to be one of repentance. That repentance is actually the heartbeat to the Christian faith. That there's this, this cycle in our lives that we grow from and through repentance into faith. 
and then back and grow from and through repentance to faith again. It's this pattern, a rhythm in our living. It's not something that we reserve just for the bad times when we've done something wrong. It's the first thing that we should do when we wake up in the morning. And the last words that we should utter before we go to sleep at night. This was number one of his 95 theses that he hammered to the door at Wittenberg, which many say was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. What happened to repentance? Maybe repentance has gotten a bad name in the church. I remember a time when repentance had gotten a bad name in Judaism. In fact, there's a biblical story about it. There's a story when, when Jesus was having dinner with the Pharisees and tax collectors. And then this woman of the city, she's called, breaks into this dinner banquet. And he goes, she goes directly to Jesus and begins anointing his feet with ointment and kissing his feet. Now, just so we're on the same page you really don't want to be called a woman of the city. It's a title without much respect, shall we say. And the Pharisees were outraged, of course, because they knew this woman. They knew she was dirty. They knew she was a prostitute. And Jesus was doing nothing about her kissing his feet. The crux to the story comes when Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says to them, those who have been forgiven little love little. But those who have been forgiven much, love much. The prostitute of the story, this woman of the city, as she's called, has more love and joy for Jesus, toward Jesus, because her repentance is deeper. Because she realizes that she has been forgiven much, she loves much. Her repentance is deeper, and it grows deeper and deeper, and as a result, her love and her joy grows greater and greater. What Martin Luther says about repentance is happening in the heart of this woman, but not in the heart of the Pharisees. Maybe the Pharisees, like many of us, save repentance only for those bad times when we know we really blew it. Maybe they say, like many of us probably would, that, that I'm a generally good person. Of course, I'm not God. I've I've fallen short of his glory. Uh, when I do something wrong, I repent. I repented this month, and I think I repented back in November when, when I did something bad again. But, but, but the irony of the story, friends, is, is that in Jesus' words, the woman, this former prostitute, gets repentance. She has the right idea of repentance and not these morally good Pharisees. What's going on in the Pharisees? What's going on in you and me who often view repentance in the very same way? Well, ultimately, friends, despairing at the thought of repentance really is symptomatic of something very, very devastating. Because ultimately, you're placing your sense of self-worth and acceptance in your own power and your own ability. A discovery of your sin that is the need to repent, then is the discovery of your own weakness and your own failure. Of course repentance is going to crush you then. Of course repentance is going to lead you to despair. It points out where you have gone wrong. 
of looking at your life, friends, especially in the season of Lent, to, to gain a deeper knowledge of your sin and your need for God leads you to despair, then you really must ask yourself, on what basis do you believe God loves you? Simple question. On what basis do you believe God loves you? Is it your good living? Is it your high standards? Is it your morality? Well, then, of course, when confronted with your sin, the basis by which you believe God loves you is shattered. If you believe God accepts you and loves you based on your moral living, your moral excellence, then what's God going to do and think of you when you happen to do something immoral? What are you going to do and think about yourself? You're going to beat yourself. You're going to despair. You're going to feel guilt. You're going to feel shame. And friends, let me tell you, guilt and shame are perhaps the two biggest barriers you can put between yourself and God. But isn't it interesting that when we read from our second lesson, Paul's words to the Corinthians, that Paul says that he preaches Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now let me ask you, have you thought about that? Have you, have you thought, why is this, this phrase, Christ crucified, why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Why is it folly to the Gentiles? Well, friends, in the first century, it's because that crucifixion was incredibly a shameful death and the ultimate pronouncement of guilt. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Guilt and shame. How could a man who is truly God's son be associated with shame and guilt? No doubt the Jews, no doubt the Jews and the Gentiles thought that Jesus was a liar. Can't we understand how the cross, how this message is a stumbling block and folly to them? God can have nothing to do with shame and guilt, can he? But this is what Paul preaches. I preach Christ crucified. He could have just as well said that I preach Christ resurrected. That's just as accurate, isn't it? And certainly that was included in the whole gospel message as Paul would, would write elsewhere in his letters and preach to these cities. But that's not how he summarizes his gospel here. He says, I preach Christ crucified. Well, Christ resurrected sounds a little less shameful, doesn't it? It sounds a little less guilty. In fact, it sounds a whole bit more, could we say, victorious. Wouldn't it have been less of a stumbling block, less folly, if, if Paul would summarize his gospel as Christ resurrected? So why does Paul say, I preach Christ crucified. And let's be, let's be clear here, friends. This isn't crucified as the old rugged cross-type crucified that we tend to romanticize in our hymns and covering gold and, and beauty in our sanctuaries. This, in the first century, with the Roman authorities, is the ultimate display and sign of guilt and shame. And this is what we find Paul preaching. I preach Christ crucified. What could a just God have to do with guilt and shame? Well, 
nothing, at least not of his own. But the gospel is a story of a just God who yet takes upon himself our guilt and our shame. Maybe Paul knew something about the fallen human mind and our burning desire to be right. Maybe he knew that this is the way that we would inevitably view repentance, that it would merely, in our minds, point out to us our own misdoings, our own failures, which leads us to despair, guilt, and shame. And maybe that's why he summarizes his gospel in two simple yet incredibly profound words, Christ crucified. And maybe this is precisely what a guilty and shameful world needs to hear. You see, friends, when we don't understand the gospel, repentance becomes this gigantic U-turn which leads back to ourselves, back to you, back to your own wrongdoing, and you're left by yourself in your own despair. But when you understand the gospel, your repentance takes you to the cross. It takes you to Mount Calvary and not just Mount Sinai. You realize that you have been forgiven much, and so you in turn love much. Your guilt and shame are taken away and nailed to the cross. You gain this greater appreciation and greater gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. And this is the cycle that we're talking about with Martin Luther in our lessons today. That when, when we know Jesus is our Savior, when we know that God's love and favor for us is already secure in Jesus Christ and not affected by our shortcomings, then when we come to realize our sin in our lives, we at the very same time realize how much more God loves us to take our guilt and shame upon himself on the cross. You see, Mount Sinai points out our guilt and shame. But Mount Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross for us, takes it away. And so Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. Now you might be thinking, well, fine and good, Bryce, but you've... You've come a little late with that message because in our service booklet and the liturgy, the repentance part has already come and gone. Well, very true, you are right. But remember, repentance is a lifestyle. It's the heartbeat to our faith. When you go home this afternoon, repent. Tonight, repent. Tomorrow morning, repent. Repent because Christ was crucified for you. Anytime you have the inkling of shame or guilt, Give it to Jesus through repentance because he has already paid for it. It's actually wrong for you to hold on to it. Do you realize that? Repentance is an affirmation of what Christ has done for you. You are forgiven. You are already forgiven, so give it to Jesus. And let repentance be an affirmation of God's great love for you. So great to take away that shame and that guilt. Now, on repentance, there's one caution that a pastor has given to me that I want to share with you. One pitfall I want to warn you about with repentance. You see, sometimes when we look at our sin in order to repent, then sometimes we only take it. Actually, we, we fall short. We only take it 
to Mount Sinai only. And let, me, let me explain. Mount Sinai is, is the place where the law was given. It's, it's the context for a lesson, and our first lesson from Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's the place where sin is named, and it makes us aware of sin. And it tells us about the dangers and consequences of sin. So when you repent, if you're only thinking of how that sin has messed up your life, if you only think of the punishments that come with that sin, then actually what you're doing, friends, isn't repentance. You're stopping short. What you're really doing, my pastor friend told me, is, is actually self-pity. Let me explain. And, and, and these are two very, very different things. Self-pity is thinking of how God is going to get me for my sin. Self-pity is thinking of how my parents are going to react to what I did. It's how my boss is going to fire me for it or, or the problems it will or has already created in my life. Now, these are important things to realize. But we tend, if we stop there, if we stop short, we tend to bring it to God, to send to God and say, God, I'm sorry for it. Take it from my life. But what we're actually saying is, God, I hate the consequences of the sin. When we actually haven't learned to hate the sin as sin, the sin itself. You see, we're only taking it to Mount Sinai, where the sin is named, and we learn of its dangers, its consequences, and its negative effects on my life. But you see, when we learn of the sin and we bring it to Mount Calvary, we repent because we know what the sin has done to God. We realize that it cost God when we look to the cross. That, friends, is true repentance. That's when you begin hating the sin because it's sin. You see, we're still consumed in ourselves, aren't we, friends? If we repent, only thinking of how the sin is hurting me. Let's be very clear here, friends. God is not a self-help God. God is a saving God. Because we can't save ourselves, friends. This is not a seven-step process to a better life. This is about God forgiving you and saving your life. True repentance then, friends, is when we realize how my sin has hurt God and his people. When you realize that, when you realize that he has taken the hurt for you because he loves you, and because he still loves you, then the power of that sin over you begins to melt away, and you can't help but to become intoxicated with God's grace and love that he lavishes on you. This, friends, is, is true repentance. This is why Christ was crucified for you, and this is why this world desperately needs to hear the gospel message that Christ is crucified for them as well. Amen.